Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Would you stop just for a moment and uh, consider what we have just sung? God with us. The biblical word for that is Emmanuel. Every Christmas we celebrate that God has come to dwell with us and to be in relationship with us. And so recognizing that, let's just again recognize the presence of God in this place as we start our time together. Our Father and our King, we thank you, God, that you have come to us. You knew, God, that because of our sin and because of our humanity, We could not make a way to you, and so you came down to us. You sent your son, your one and only son, whom you love, to be one who would die on our behalf to bring us um, righteousness, to bring us forgiveness, to bring us wholeness, to, to enable us to have relationship with the living God of the universe. Father, I ask as we open your word this morning, that you would teach us and that you would lead us so that we might have a more vibrant, a more personal, a more intimate relationship with you as we leave this place. We thank you, God, for the... um, We thank you for the many who have gathered to make much of the name of Jesus. May all we do, may all we do today, God, be to further your kingdom and your will on earth as it is in heaven. We pray together in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to conclude our series in 1 John this morning. We began this some weeks ago. Uh, And one of the things that we've encouraged you to do throughout this process, uh, there's two, uh, the first one is to take 30 days and to read the book of 1 John every day. Now, that is a tall order because you, you hit the end of your day sometimes and you're like, all right, 1 John, here we go. Um, but, but in reality, it, it's such a great way to have the Word of God dwell in you richly. And so if you've joined us on part of that journey or all of that journey, I just want to say I, I, I trust that God's Word would not return empty in your life. I, I know that as you continue to engage the Scripture, God will bring those readings that you have done back to mind. Um, the second thing that we've encouraged and challenged you to do is to take an entire chapter of the book of 1 John and to commit it to memory. Few things are as powerful in our spiritual lives as taking God's word and taking it from the, the pages of the text, putting it in here, and allowing God to do a work in us as we memorize the text. And so if you have done that, I would love to talk with you just, just to hear about how it's going. Maybe you're not done with that yet, but I, I would encourage you, uh, even if you haven't started, jump into chapter one, start memorizing the first verse, and allow God's word to dwell in you richly. We are going to be in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 11 and go through the end of the book. And one of the things, kind of the big thing we're going to be looking at today is there's a series of statements that have to do with the word know, K-N-O-W, things that we know, 
because this is something that John really wants to hammer home uh, to his hearers as he encourages them to continue walking faithfully before God. He wants them to know certain things and to walk in the light of that knowledge. So I invite you out of respect for the scriptures. Would you stand with me as we read today? First John chapter 5, verse 11 is where we're going to start. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is sin that brings death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God but sorry, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We're talking about what it means to know today. What things does John want his hearers to know about their faith? And you might just ask the question, what does it mean to know something? Several years ago, there was a building built in Toronto, Canada, and um, it, it's a building called the CN Tower. Have any, has anyone ever been to the CN Tower? Oh, a couple of hands. Okay. So in 1994, the CN Tower was built, and the CN Tower is a pretty tall tower, and what made it unique is they were the first place in the world to install a glass floor. All right, and we're not talking a glass floor like on the base level or 100 feet off the ground or 500 feet off the ground or even 1,000 feet off the ground. 1,122 feet up in the air, there's, there's, a, um, there's a certain level of, of, of the building and part of the floor of that is glass. So if you look at it and you walk on it, guess what you see? you see a lot of little things down below. Now, for, for those of you who love heights, that does not you know, bother you in the least. For those of you who don't care to be on heights, perhaps me even mentioning that goes, makes you go, whew, okay. So in 1999, I was uh, on a band trip with our high school and we did some concerts in Canada and one of the ex- special excursions we did is we went to the CN Tower. So here's a group of high schoolers and we're walking around whatever floor it was and we're looking at this glass floor. And, and they have different experiences you can do. You can watch some really cool YouTube videos of people like um, going out and they're harnessed in and they're looking over the side of the building. We didn't do that. That was a little too uh, crazy for us. But, um, but we're coming up to the floor 
And here's one of the things that we knew. We knew that this floor held sufficient weight. Okay, this floor is tested five times what the legal um, minimum is for them to be able to hold. So they, they make sure that this two and a half inch glass can hold people. Not only that, if you go on their website, it says that um, this floor is so strong, it will hold 35 moose on top of this floor. If you've ever seen a moose, you know how big they are. Canadians love their moose, and so that's how they tell weight up north. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's a robust floor. So there's a bunch of us high schoolers, and we're watching this, and we're able to see that's going to hold me. Yes, I can step on that, and I can know that that will do what they have said it will do. But the question is, is will I actually step on it? What, what, what level of trust do I have in this floor? In the first couple verses of, of John's closing here, we're really just, he's kind of wrapping things up. He has lots of uh, no statements, K-N-O-W. The first one occurs in verse 13. He says this, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, now the word for know here. And the word for no used predominantly through our passage is the Greek word oida. Can you say oida? Okay, it's not oida. That would be the potato brand. It is oida, O-I-D-A. I don't have it on the screen for you, so you just have to follow me today. Uh, oida. And, and it means this. <clears throat> it describes a knowledge based upon one's own observation based upon one's own observation, based upon something you have seen, something you have witnessed, something um, that, that, that has given you sufficient information, you can know what is true. And he says this, he says, I, I've written these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, it, things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, he's telling us here is, you've heard about Jesus. You've, you've heard what he's done. You've seen how the power of God has impacted this community. You've heard how, uh, how Jesus lived. You've heard how he died. You know what is true. You, you, you've, you've seen it. We, and he actually says in chapter 1, we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. One of the reasons they see it is because it's been testified to them. They've experienced it with great, with great um, veracity and truthfulness. And, and he says, I want you to know these things because I want you to know that you have eternal life. One of the things he wants them to live in confidence with is that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we imagine um, eternal life as, as just kind of being like life without end. Um, now, certainly that is a component of it, but it misses the breadth of what it means to have eternal life. John wants his hearers to not doubt the one in whom they have trusted for life. In John 17, 3, and several weeks ago, I, I think I shared this verse with you, um, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this. He, he says, this is eternal life. Jesus is defining eternal life for, um, for his hearers. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. In, in other words, there is nothing um, that brings eternal life except for God himself. And God as he has been revealed through his son, Jesus. E eternal life is not a mere extension of time. It's actually a, a way to live. 
I define it this way in my notes. Uh, Eternal life is experiencing life with the eternal God for all of eternity. Eternal life is experiencing life with the eternal God for all of eternity. And we see this in the first couple verses of 1 John. You can hold your place there and flip over to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 if you'd like. Um, he, he begins in verse 1, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, i.e. Jesus. That life was revealed, we have seen it. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father that was revealed to us. And he says this, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's, it's eternal life. Eternal life is experiencing life or experiencing fellowship, experiencing friendship and intimacy with the eternal God for all of eternity. But even as 1 John talks about in chapter 1, it's, it's not just with God. It's actually with all of God's people. So when we think of the phrase eternal life, it is something that we certainly look forward to the culmination of, but it's something that we are called to live and experience daily here on this earth. When you consider eternity, what do you imagine? What, what, what do you imagine? Do you, do, you, do you go to like the, uh, you know, I, I imagine mountains because I love mountains and, you know, like eternity, I'll get to explore mountains, you know. Do, do you imagine that? Do, do you imagine having conversations with um, family or friends who have, who have passed away but who are, who are um, followers of Jesus and you know that you'll see them again? How do you imagine eternity? And I want to suggest to us that central to understanding eternity is, is to understand that we will be with God forever. We will experience life in its fullest expression with the eternal God for all of eternity. At the center of eternal life is not just life, it's actually a person, and it's Jesus. Do you know that you have eternal life? John wants his hearers to know that if you've believed in the name of the Son of God, you can know that you have eternal life. In, in other words, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Have you trusted in his work upon the cross to bring you forgiveness for your sin? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? And do you walk in that newness of life by his spirit? Now, one of the things that hit me even as I was thinking last night about this is there's lots of these I know statements or I want you to know and the question is, why? why? Why Why? would he want us to know? And think about this one for a moment. It, why would John want us to know that we can know that we have eternal life? One of the reasons I think, I think that's involved with this, there may be more, is he wants us to live with a different kind of confidence. Sometimes we reach certain points in our life where we begin to doubt our salvation. We say, oh, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. God, am I really saved? And we come to this point where we start questioning. And I've had conversations with, with lots of friends over, with this over the years. And, and invariably, here's what I come back to. I come back to, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sins? If the answer to those questions is yes, then I say, you can know that you have eternal life. Now, what does God want you to do? He wants you to walk confidently before him 
as his child. Not arrogantly, confidently. And there's a difference. Notice with me this confidence. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Okay? This is still the Greek word oida. It describes knowledge based upon one owns ob, one's own obvers, uh, observation. Say that four times fast. Um, he wants us to know that we can confidently, as God's children, go to God in prayer and know that God will hear us. It's, it's one thing to pray and be like, God, I don't know if you're going to hear this. And, and honestly, there's times probably in your life where you've prayed and you're going to be like, I, I don't know, God, did you, did you hear that? Do you care? I don't know if you're real. John is wanting his hearers to know with confidence that because they're God's children, when they pray, God hears. Now, the idea of hearing here is not just God has ears and he can listen to you. It's that he listens and he acts upon our behalf. And it's important to ask, are there any conditions upon how God acts when we pray? And the answer is, yes, there are. This is the confidence we have. Whenever we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. And so, in other words, when we pray according to God's will, in other words, in in keeping with um, God's priorities and God's kingdom, when we pray according to that, and a great way to pray that way is to know the word of God and to pray the word of God. If you pray according to the will of God, the truth of God is, is that he hears you and he answers. He, he answers. There's no if and, there's no maybe. It's he answers that prayer. Do you pray confidently? Do you pray with expectation? When you pray, do you seek to know God's will and to understand his heart? Or do you try to bend God's ear to what you in your own person would want? Stephen Smalley, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, prayer is not a battle but a response. Its power consists in lifting our wills to God's, not in trying to bring his will down to us. Sometimes we confidently pray, but we go to God with things that are really more uh, concerns and issues related to what we want instead of to what he wants. The supreme example for how to pray is Jesus, as he is the supreme example for everything. Um, But you might recall when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to undergo um, the cross and his death and his resurrection, and, and he reaches a point of utter, you know, the human side of him was experiencing great grief and great sorrow, great pain. He says, Father, if it is possible to remove this cup from me, that is what I wish. But then he says, but not as I will. God, I want your will to be done. Jesus was so, um, so conscious about what the Father's will was, that he willingly said, God, your will, not mine. 
Prayer is not a battle, but a response. It's power consistent, lifting our wills to God, not in trying to bring his will down to us. When you pray, do you, do you attempt to impose your will on God? Or do you say, God, show me your will? Recognizing the difference between those two prayers drastically changes how we approach God. Does it not? Now, he goes from teaching his hearers that they can have confidence that when they ask whatever uh, is in in accordance with God's will, he hears them. He he transitions this. And in verses 16 and 17, he he kind of begins to, to flesh this out a little bit. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, same word that's used above there, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. Now, verses 16 and 17, I'll be very honest with you, are challenging verses. Uh, we, we spent maybe 45 minutes on Thursday just as pastors kicking this one around and trying to understand it properly. And I'm going to give you my best, but I want you to know that there is, if you go look on the internet or something like that, you, you, will, um, you will find various opinions with how to best understand these couple verses. Um, John is, I believe, trying to uh, take the truth of when we ask God, we know that he hears us, that confidence, and he's trying to apply it to the community. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, okay? In other words, he, that, that's how it's lived out. Um, just like you ask anything according to God's will, he hears and he acts. If you or I see a fellow believer not just a brother, but a brother or sister in Christ who is, um, who is committing a sin that does not bring death, we can trust that as we pray for them, God restores life. Now, what does this mean? If you notice, and we go down a little bit later in the verse, he says, there is sin that brings death. I'm not saying that he shouldn't pray about that. And so we have kind of the juxtaposition of two things. We have, there's a sin that does not bring death, and there's a sin that brings death. Okay, how do we understand the difference between these two things? Is it talking about physical life and physical death? Is it talking about spiritual life or spiritual death? What is he talking about? Um, I I take the perspective that he is talking about um, spiritual life and spiritual death. And the reason I do that is because the whole context of what John is talking about, even back to verse 11 and throughout the book, is he's talking about God has given us life and this life is in his son. The, The quality of life versus death here seems to be eternal in nature. Now, eternal life, as I've already said, has practical implications for today. But it's not just physical life and physical death. And, and so what is the, um, the sin that does not bring death? Because do we not know that all sin leads to death, right? The, the wages of sin is? Right, Romans, right? So how do we understand what is the sin that does not bring death? And I suggest to you, it, it comes, um, if you look at the word brother, the word brother there refers to someone who is a follower of Jesus, a genuine follower of Jesus. Now we know, and John has actually already talked about this throughout his letter, if you've been reading along, I think it's in chapter 3, he, he says, those who are of God don't sin. Now, does he mean that they don't sin? No, he doesn't mean that they don't commit sins. What he means is that their life is not a pattern of sinning. In in other words, um, as the scripture says in a couple different places, they have been made new in Christ. 
Their old life is not factored in when God looks at them. Because when God looks at them, he doesn't see them as a wayward sinner. He sees them as his child who still struggles with the flesh and sins. And there's a difference. I think that's what John is pulling in here. The eternal... um, the, sorry, the, um, the sin that does not bring death, therefore, is for a believer who does commit a sin, but that sin doesn't lead to death because, the, because he has a relationship or she has a relationship with Jesus that brings life. And one of the things that John is saying here is that as a community of faith, if you see someone sinning, or if I see someone sinning, one of the responsibilities that we have for that brother or sister in Christ is to pray for them. Not to gossip about them, not to go behind their back, but to pray for them. Now, sometimes God may also use us to speak truth into them because God desires not that they would just, um, not that they would just um, continue in that sin even though they're saved. In fact, in verse 17, he says, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin that doesn't bring death. It is still unrighteous to sin. God still does not want us to sin. But what he is communicating is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we see someone who's gone astray. We see someone who's going down a path that would lead to greater and greater sin. What do we do? We pray. We pray. We begin praying for that person who's walking down that path. We begin praying for the other person who's walking down that path. We pray that God would restore life to them. And it's in that case where God says, yes, I will restore life. And why does he restore life? Well, he restores life because God God has saved them. Their salvation is sure and it is secure. But God will also use the Holy Spirit in their life to bring conviction and to bring a a responsiveness to his spirit. Um, A a Hebrew Bible example of this I thought of earlier um, was um, David. You know, David sinned with Bathsheba, and he went down this pattern of sin. Now, David is known in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart, and yet he committed some very heinous sin. He had a man killed. He had an inappropriate relationship with someone else. And God uses a prophet, um, Nathan, I believe it is, to come and to speak to him and to say, you are sinning, stop it. And when David is confronted with that truth, brokenness ensues because he's, he, he's a man after God's own heart. He recognizes the path he has gone down. He recognizes it's wrong and God restores life. All right, so, so that, that's maybe one way to understand that. Um, so then, therefore, what is the sin that does bring death? One of the um, conversations that John has been having over the course of the, of the five chapters here is that there are false teachers within the community. These are people who would meet with the gatherings. There are people who had relationships with, with those in the fellowship. And slowly, 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 they begin under not understanding, they, they begin to teach things that are contrary to God's word. And the biggest thing that they teach is, is that Jesus is not both fully God and fully man, that he's not who he says he is. And, and that's like the cornerstone of the entire Christian faith, um, if you don't understand Jesus properly. They, they, and so I, I, the way I understand the sin that leads to death, it's sin 
that is committed by someone who is not a follower of Jesus and that leads to death because they have no relationship, genuine relationship with God. They, they may have paid lip service to um, faith. They may have been involved in all of the, um, all the meetings of the church. They may have sung the songs. They may have read the passages. But if you go to the core of their heart, they don't have genuine faith in Christ. And it's impossible to restore life to those who do not have a relationship with God. Now, um, in the latter part of verse 16, John, said, John doesn't command prayer for the forgiveness of sin for the person uh, who is an unbeliever. Why is this? Well, remember the context of the prayer here is to restore life to the believer, to restore fellowship, to restore relationship with God to the believer. If someone is not a believer, you can't pray, God, restore life to the person because they don't have life in him at all anyway. You can't restore something that you never had. What you can pray, though, and we find this out in, in, in how Paul prays in Romans chapter 10, is you can pray for someone's salvation. You can pray for them to, to repent and to turn from their sin. Uh, Paul says, I think it's in Romans 10, he says in Romans 10, with great power, and it's the only place that I know of in the text where there's direct prayers for someone who is far from God. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters, um, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. So you want to pray for someone who is far from God, pray that prayer. But this is a different kind of prayer that he is commanding us to pray for people within the community of faith and a prayer that he will hear. Um, one uh, commentator writes like, uh, describes it like this. This is Ray Van Ness in the ESV commentary. He says, John is not describing a sin that, be, that can be committed accidentally or even in a moment. Yet, in all, yet all sin is gradual. No one reaches full degradation overnight. Rather, every sin paves the way for deeper and greater sin. Thus, John calls for believers to pray for one another, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that he eventually turns away from Christ and goes out from the company of the redeemed, proving that he was never truly saved. What they lacked was a relationship with the eternal God. John wants to ensure his hearers that, number one, that they can know that they have a relationship with God, that they have, number two, a responsibility to pray for those who are followers of Jesus, but who commit sin to be restored. But he seems to say, there's a sin that brings death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. In other words, don't, don't pray for a false teacher or for someone who's going astray from the faith to be restored to life when they never had life anyway. I would say, this is me, not this passage, I would say, pray that they would come to an understanding of the gospel and that they would walk in a way and respond to the gospel in a way that, that, that they would trust God and God alone through his son Jesus Christ for salvation. 
And as a result, then they come into genuine faith within the community. Now, that's a difficult passage. And uh, if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to do that. Um, The third kind of no statement here, moving on, begins in verse 18. He says, we know, Oida, which means, um, describes knowledge based upon one's own observation. We know, based upon our observation, that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And similarly, we, we know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So he just comes off of that, and he wants to remind his hearers, hey, I want you to know that God will protect his people from the evil one. I also want you to know that we, you belong to God, not to the world. Why would John care that his hearers know this? In these verses, verses 18 and 19, John recognizes the power of the evil one in the world. John assures his readers that if they're born of God, in other words, if they've experienced life with the eternal God, then their life is not defined by sin. They have entered into eternal fellowship with God. Now, John is not saying that they do not sin, but that the power of the adversary is no match for God. In the study on the disciples' prayer, one of the last things that, that, that happens in that passage uh, is, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we, we talked about this a little bit back then. One of, the, one of the reasons, I think, why it comes near the end of that prayer is because Jesus spends the first couple verses of that prayer teaching his followers some important things. Our Father, our, our which is intimacy. That's um, Father there's the, correspondent to the word Abba, which, which is, um, connotes respect. It also connotes intimacy. You can go to God and you say, Abba, Papa, I come directly to you. I come directly to you. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified. God, God may your name be holy. And as we studied and we went back to Isaiah uh, in other places in the text, God's name is sanctified because it is, but, but we also are called to live out sanctifying God's name. May your name be sanctified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. John cares that his hearers know that they are guarded and they are protected against the adversary. I don't know about you, but there have been a few times in my life where I have sensed great spiritual warfare. Um, sometimes I think we, we, we go between two levels. We either make too much of it or we don't make enough of it. Meaning sometimes we overly focus on the battle around us that we lose sight of the God who protects us. But sometimes we are completely oblivious to the spiritual battle for our souls that is around us. The Bible describes the adversary uh, like a lion who comes to seek and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came that he might bring life, life to the full. And he calls us into that life. And John says, by the way, God will protect you from the attack of the evil one. You can know that you belong to God and not to the world. John does not want his beloved, 
all right, his dear friends to walk in their old identity. He wants them to act in keeping with being God's child because while the evil one may have immense power in the world, his power is no match for God. So as, as followers of Jesus, what does this mean? Well, it means that, as we often sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. That's a great truth. When we face difficult moments, we can know, man, it's here in the power of Christ I stand. But it also reminds us of the importance of the battle for our minds and our hearts. One of the things that can quickly lead us astray is we begin to allow our hearts and our minds to be occupied by things that are unholy, things that are not of God, things that are not true, and we begin living by those messages instead of the messages of who we are as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. When it talks uh, in Galatians, uh, Ephesians, I think it is, about putting on the the, the armor of God, one of the important parts of the armor is the belt of truth. It's the belt of truth. One of the most important things we can do as followers of Jesus is to constantly allow our hearts and our minds to be um, guided into what is truth. Truth. This is why it matters that we become more and more a people of the text. When we allow truth to be determined by uh, current culture, or we allow truth to be determined by our past experience, when we allow truth to be determined by the person next door, instead of by the truth of the Scripture and in the power of God and the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth, we quickly go down a path that gives um, opportunities for the adversary to have a foothold in our lives. Now, he cannot control us, but we can give over ground to him and allow our mind and our heart to be led astray by things that are untrue. So, so, so young people, are, are you in the word? Are you allowing your heart and your mind to be guided by the text? Are you allowing God's spirit to show you where there's sin in your life so that you can walk in his grace? Not young people. Are you allowing your heart and your mind to be guided by the word of God? Does it dwell in you richly? When you open it, do you, do you have a sense of, God, this is your word. Help me to live in this by your grace. What, what defines your life and how you live? I love what um, John says in chapter 2. Uh, turn with me back, please, to verses 13 and 14. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons that John writes this letter, he says in verse 12, we'll start there. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. And several weeks ago, I, I just quickly explained, um, children here refers to people who are young in, young in their faith. They, they've just come to faith in Jesus. We have some of those in this room. All right, we, we have some people who have recently chosen to follow Jesus in this room. Your sins have been forgiven 
because of Jesus' name. That's a truth for you. And he says, I'm writing to you fathers. The fathers here refers to people who have been walking with Jesus for many, many, many years. And they're spiritually mature. They've grown up. They've allowed the word of God to saturate them. It's not, it's not just a, a, a connotation of age. It's, it, it describes your spiritual maturity. Fathers, because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. He says, I'm writing to young men because you have had victory over the evil one. Young men are pe- pe- people who have been followers of Jesus for a little while, but they're still working through some of those basic um, truths of who God is and how do I live this out. In verse 14, he says, I've written to you children because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you fathers because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men, notice this, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Even within John's own writing here in 1 John, how do you have victory over the evil one? Well, you recognize that that God will keep you, but you also seek to allow God's word to dwell in you and to remain in you, because that's how you have victory over the evil one. When Jesus is tempted by the adversary, and we're talking, this is Jesus, okay? When he is tempted, the man who never sinned, when he is tempted, in the wilderness. He responds to three temptations with passages from the scripture. Deuteronomy was one of his favorite books of the Bible. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's one more, and I can't remember what it is right now. He didn't allow just the common words of man to go up against the, the, um, the temptation of the adversary. He allowed God's truth, God's word, to be that which became the way that he defeated the adversary. John, I believe, wants us to remember this because he cares that we stand firm against the people and the um, powers and the authorities of the evil world who seek to divert us in a different way. And he wants us to stand, knowing that we are God's, and stand in the truth of God's word. The last no statement occurs in uh, verse, verse 20. And there's actually two in here. Um, but, and we know, this is again the Greek word oida. It means, it describes a knowledge based upon one's own, own ob- observation. We know that the Son of God, we can see by witnessing that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? So that we may know the true one. Now, it's interesting here, and I caught this this week. It took me a long time to catch this for some reason. He's used this one Greek word, oida, oida, oida. Truth in knowledge based upon one's own observation. But then he switches the Greek word. All right, he comes down to the second no, and I don't know how yours translates it here, um, but, but so that we may know the true one. And he switches that word. If you write in your Bible, sometimes I do because I want to remember this kind of stuff. I wrote O-I-D-A, O-I-D-A by all the other ones. But by this one, it's the word gnosko. Can you say gnosko? Gnosko. All right, G-I-N-O-S-K-O is how you'd spell it in English. And it's, it's a very similar word to Oida. There's, there's a lot of parallels. And so this week I was asking, why does he use a different word? He uses it intentionally. Why does he do that? One of the differences between these two Greek words is while, um, while Oida describes knowledge based upon your observation, Gnosko goes the next level. And it, and it describes 
A knowledge based upon growing intimacy, arriving at a knowledge through experience and acquaintance. I'll read that again. Gnosko describes a knowledge based upon growing intimacy, arriving at a knowledge through experience and acquaintance. Here's maybe a way to understand that really long sentence. So, <clears throat> I, I, I told you, in 1999, we went to the CN Tower, and I'm watching this glass floor. I know it can hold 35 moose, all right? I know that this will hold me. <laughs> I've seen a whole bunch of people walk across. I, I, I know that. If you were to ask me in a court of law, would you step on that knowing that it would hold you? I would say, yes, I would. The difference between Elida knowing that and Gnosko is this, <laughs> is walking over and actually stepping on that floor and beginning to experience what it means to be 1,122 feet off the ground watching people walk around below me going, Lord, please let this hold. <laughs> It's the experience. Now, here's what I did, all right? Watching all these people walk on it. Some of my classmates were like lying down on it and stuff like that. I'm like, there's no way. Because this is like 25 feet up to this projector. I've been up there a couple times. I don't really care to do that. Even that's not my favorite, even on a big lift. So I'm walking over. You can tell my love for heights right now. So I'm walking over and I come to the edge of this glass floor and I go like... Uh, literally shaking, and I go, uh, okay, I'm done. <laughs> but sometimes that's what we do with God. We know the truth of the Bible. We, we know that God has saved us and redeemed us. We know that we are his children. We, we know these things by information, but what God wants us to do is to, little by little by little throughout our life, he wants us to step and to step and to step closer and closer in relationship with him. What he wants for all of eternity is to be in fellowship with his people. That's why he came. So I just have maybe one, maybe two questions today for you. Where are you on this journey? Have you trusted Jesus, have you put your faith in the one who can save you from your sin and who does save you from your sin by believing that he died and he rose again? If you have, where are you at on the walk towards ever-increasing intimacy with the Father? One of the things that keeps us from this, John picks up in the very last verse. He says, little children, guard yourself from what? Idols. Idols. What, what is an idol? You don't need to answer out loud. An idol is anything that takes the importance of Christ away. An idol is something that you place before God. And, it, and you say, I would rather know this than know him. I would rather know this than know him. I'd rather walk in this than know him. I find it utterly fascinating that John says at the end of his letter, little children, guard yourself from idols because idols are that very thing which keep us from growing in intimacy with God, which is exactly where he wants his hearers to be.
Two questions. Where are you along this like walking line? Imagine the line. Are you growing and growing in intimacy with God so that you walk over across that floor and maybe your knees are knocking and shaking, but you know he will hold you? Are you distracted by this idol and by that idol, the, the idol of self, the idol that I have to be a perfect person, the idol that this must be done in order to satisfy my demands, the, the, the idol of time, the idol of money, the idol of possessions, the idol of you name it, sports, recreation, anything that takes the place of God in your life and in my life, friends, is an idol. And it keeps us from growing more intimate with God. Here's how I want to end today. At the end of this, I want to give you a minute or two. Because, friends, we all have idols in our lives. John says in chapter one, he he says, if anyone claims that they do not have sin, they're lying and not practicing the truth. Look how blunt he is. I would, you know, make the Jeremy statement. If anyone claims that they don't have an idol that occasionally or more frequently pops up in their life, they're lying and not practicing the truth. I want to give you a moment here to just just sit before God and say, God, what are my idols? Oh, that. And repent of them, friends. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that does, what that promise and that truth that scripture does, it brings us back into fellowship with God. So take a moment right now, just, just quiet for a minute or two here. and Spend that time in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us understanding so that we may know the true one. Thank you, God, for keeping us and for guarding us from the attacks of the evil one in our lives. We stand upon the truth of your word today and ask, God, that you would lead and guide us into all truth, that our lives might reflect the priorities that you have for us and for this world. As, as the, the writer once said, give us one pure and holy passion. Give us one magnificent obsession. Give us one glorious ambition for our life to know and to follow hard after you. We bless you, God. We, we thank you for your word which guides us. We thank you for your spirit who illuminates the text for us. God, we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who, who, who come alongside us, not, not to beat us down and not to gossip about us when we, when we face difficulty, but rather to lovingly pray and to intercede for us on our behalf. And, and also, God, for brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside us to show us sin so that we may walk a more righteous and holy life by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. We bless you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, as we begin to close, would you stand with me? Begin to close. It won't be long close. As we were just finishing up the teaching time, this psalm came to mind. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where's their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have eyes but do not, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You hear that? Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. He says this, Israel trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And he says, you, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not go down to praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we, we will bless the Lord. We will praise the Lord both now and forevermore. And then he ends with this, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Would you say that with me? Hallelujah. As you go forth this week, by God's grace, may he show us the places in which we have trusted in idols and the work of our hands instead of his perfect, sufficient grace for us this day. And may he give you grace to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received, not in condemnation, not in fear, but in the power of the one who has saved and redeemed you. May he receive all glory. Amen? If there's anything we can do to help serve you uh, this week in your spiritual walk or anything else, I invite you to reach out to us at the church. Um, We have adult um, classes and children's Sunday school that are going to begin in about 13 minutes here. We invite you to join us in one of those. Have a fantastic day. Go with God. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message, or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.